Okay, we get to read from Mark chapter 10, verse 17 through 31. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are here today coming to your presence. Lord, among your family, your children, our brothers and sisters, because we desire to hear what your word and your spirit would say to this church concerning these things. Lord, we believe and we've been singing that you are the greatest treasure. Lord, that you are the greatest good. Lord, that you are uh, the maker of heaven and earth, that you are worthy of glory and honor and praise and that it's our desire to exalt you in our minds and in our hearts. And so, Lord, I pray that you would be exalted in our midst, in our presence, in our minds, and our hearts today, as we hear your word, Lord, would you teach us? And would you draw us into not only an intimacy with you, Lord, but would you transform us by your presence, that we would desire the things that you desire, that we would pursue the things that you pursue, and that we would receive, ultimately, that we have everything in Christ. So God, bless your people today. Teach your people today, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Um, in India and in other parts of the world, there are people 
who work as monkey trappers. And they use a brilliant technique for capturing monkeys. They take a box um, and they cut a hole in the box and they put food in the box. And that hole in the box is big enough for the monkey to slide his hand into and grab the food, but it is so small that now that he has made a fist around the thing that he desires, that the monkey is not able to get his hand back out of the box. And so even when the trapper approaches, the monkey so desperately wants what's in its hand that it refuses to let go and lets itself be captured. And so it's trapped, not by the trap itself, but it's trapped by its own will. Silly monkeys. There are lots of good things in this world. Good, beautiful things that that God, the maker of heaven and earth, has made for us to enjoy. But isn't that what makes the best bait? That's why we put something a fish wants on a hook. It's desirable, it's good, the fish wants it and is trapped by it. And so the, the, we're lured into these traps oftentimes by something that we desire. And the enemy, the devil, uses so many good things in this world to bait his own little monkey traps. And we, like simple apes with white knuckle grips, are trapped by our own misplaced values. See, in our text today, Jesus is continuing on his journey to Jerusalem. He has said that he's going to Jerusalem, that he will suffer at the hands of men, that he will die, but three days later, he will rise from the dead. And so on his way to Jerusalem, a young man throws himself down at Jesus' feet. This isn't uncommon. Throughout Jesus' ministry, many people came and they threw themselves down at Jesus' feet. We recall the father of a dying daughter, a woman with a bleeding problem, a Gentile woman with a demonized child, all of these desperate people in desperate situations. They sought Jesus. They threw themselves down at his feet. They pleaded for mercy and all of them walked away having received from Jesus the thing that they sought. But here's a man on the other side of the spectrum. This man has everything. In in the kingdom of this world, according to the values of this world, this man is an exemplary life. He's got everything going for him. He's rich. Mark tells us that he has great possessions. Matthew, uh, another gospel in the New Testament, tells the same story and, and tells us that he's young. So he's a rich, young man. Luke tells this same story, and when Luke tells the story, he calls him a ruler. And so historically, this story is known as the story of the rich, young ruler. And he too seeks something from Jesus, some assurance that his life is in fact a life well lived. And so he comes and he throws himself at Jesus' feet and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Now, it's unfortunate that many people throughout church history have dragged this guy through the mud. We have not been kind to the rich young ruler. We assume insincerity 
There seems like something insincere going on in the way that this man relates to Jesus. For no other reason, other than his, his claim to have kept the commandments. It sounds like a prideful boast to us. He says that he has kept the commandments and we go, no. And so we pick apart everything else that he says. His title for Jesus, good teacher, mere flattery. His, his humble posture at Jesus' feet, just trying to gain Jesus' favor, just playing a part, playing a game. But all this is unfair. In all honesty, it's unfair. Because the Apostle Paul, uh, uh, after his conversion, talks about his pre-conversion life. And when looking back on his pre-conversion life, he says that according to a righteousness from the law, that he was blameless. And you know what? We don't come to that text and say, Paul, such a liar. Just, just a prideful, boastful, ignorant claim. And so, why are we okay throwing this guy under the bus? Here's my theory. To use a modern cultural buzzword, I believe it has been the church's attempt to other this man. To regard him as something other than we are. He's not like me. He's not a follower of Jesus like I am. His, his, he's not sincere in his faith as we are. And therefore, we can disregard his story. And Jesus' words may have applied to him, but they don't apply to me because he's different. And it softens the blow. It softens the blow. Jesus tells him that the barrier between him and eternal life is his money. And if he wants to go to heaven, if he wants eternal life, he's got to give it all away. So if I can create distance between myself and this man, between his situation and my situation, then I don't have to listen to it. It limits Jesus' charge to people who are just like him. But what happens the minute we start giving this man the benefit of the doubt? What if he is sincere in his righteousness? What if he is sincere in his dependence? What if he is sincere in his, 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 his coming to Jesus? Do you see it? Is it terrifying? Do you see yourself? I do. The minute we start giving this man the benefit of the doubt, the most dangerous thing happens. We relate to him. We can identify with him. See, we all want to identify with Peter. We all want to be able to relate to Peter. Jesus, see, we have given everything to follow you. But that's not what Mark wants for us in this text. Mark wants us to be able to see ourselves in this man because this man, like the rest of us, in our honesty, we know that even at our best, this man knew that even in his best, in all of his luxury and in all of his legal obedience, something is missing. He believes he's doing everything required of him and doing his best to enjoy the blessing. And yet he still senses emptiness. 
He still experiences some spiritual deficit, some existential problem that he's not been able to resolve. This is why he comes to Jesus. He goes, I've done everything that's been required of me. I've received everything that the world has to give me. And yet I know that something is wrong. What am I missing? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And if we're honest, regardless of our sincerity, regardless of all of our best efforts, or even our faith in Jesus, there are times when we want something more. There are times when when we want something that will satisfy us, satisfy the longing that we feel in the moments when it feels like God is not enough. We're honest. We've, we've encountered those situations in life. And so, family, it is very dangerous to see ourselves in this man because it means that Jesus' words apply to us as well. And what we will find is that eternal life with God is not found in the things that we do, it's not found in something that you're, you're neglecting to do, but it's found in what we value most. Because what we do is only shaped by what we value. James K.A. Smith says, Our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity, the wellspring from which our actions and behaviors flow. And so if our actions, if our behaviors come out of our values, then this means that over time, as we continue to live from out of these values, whether we're aware of them or not, our character begins to take shape. Who we are begins to take shape. And so what we value determines who we are becoming. What we value determines who we are becoming. If we value the culture around us, if we value the same values as the culture around us, we will not only be shaped by the culture, but we will become like the culture. This man was a perfect representative of all that was good and desirable according to the values of his culture. But just like his culture, he placed these things this wealth and youth and and status above other things that scripture values like caring for the poor. See, righteousness is not just about avoiding the bad things. Righteousness is also about doing the good things, not leaving the important things undone. And so righteousness is not just about moral perfection. It's about living in right relationships with God and with others. It's not just about avoiding the bad things. It's about doing the good things. If we want to be physically healthy, it's not enough just to add healthy foods to your diet. You've also got to cut out the garbage. It's not just about adding something good. We have to take away the things that are harmful. We need to, we need to take out the garbage from what we eat. We need to, to get exercise. We need to go outside in order to be healthy. And so this man had an obedience to the letter of the law, but neglected the spirit of the law. He may have abstained from actively wounding others, but he did not actively bind up the wounded. He may have abstained from defrauding others, 
but he had not been generous. He had not provided when others needed provision. And so this kind of partial righteousness may have been praised by those who knew him, but Jesus wasn't falling for it. He may have had more success than others in the community, but he was just like them. He was just like the culture because he valued the same things and he undervalued the same things. And so he became who the world praised. See, in junior high, I I got picked on quite a bit, primarily for my teeth. I had such an overbite before braces that it was often said that I could eat an apple through a picket fence. Don't laugh at me. Are my wounds. I got picked on quite a bit. And though the, and the, the, the primary source of abuse came from the, the, the popular crowd. And so I figured if I wanted to stop getting made fun of, if I wanted to be like one of them, I needed to start doing the things that they did. I needed to start valuing, unconsciously valuing the things that they valued. And so I distanced myself from my friends because they were too unpopular. I was trying to, I didn't want to be a part of that. I wanted to be a part of this. And so I began mastering the craft of insult, right? Just, just wickedness and hostility and cruelty veiled as humor. And by the time I was in high school, I got what I wanted. By the time I was in high school, I had completely distanced myself from that old me and had become the, the, the person that I thought I always wanted and I hated myself. I had the right friends. I was invited to the right parties. I got the attention of the right people and I hated myself because I realized I had become just like my bullies. And if it weren't for Jesus, I'd still be there. I would absolutely still be there. Because these temptations don't ever go away. To be a part of the in crowd, to be accepted, to be desirable, to be a part of what the community praises, what the culture values. As adults, if you value getting ahead in business, you might need to cut a few corners or be a little cutthroat because it produces results. If you value the house in the right neighborhood, you might need to overwork a little bit. If you value being socially accepted, you may need to side with the the loudest voices in culture. And it just might work. It might work. And you might lose yourself in the process. You might forget who you are. Forget who God has made you. And forget where you came from. And forget what he's done in your life. And find yourself in a situation that not only isn't good, but it's not you. If we value what the culture values, we will become just like the culture. But if we value what Jesus values, then we will become like Jesus. See, Jesus looks at this man and he loves him. He says, Jesus looked at him and he loved him. This is beautiful. He looks at him. He loves him. He doesn't argue with him. He doesn't condemn him. He doesn't say, come on, man, you have not kept the commandments. He says, you lack one thing, go, sell, give, and follow. Go sell all that you have, give to the poor, 
and then come and follow me. If this man would be a disciple of Jesus, he, like his disciples, like he said a couple passages ago, would have to deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow Jesus. And so this man ultimately leaves not only Jesus, but leaves eternal life behind. The very thing he came for, he leaves it all on the table, and he says, no deal. And he walks away sad because he valued the things that he had more than the things that Jesus had desired to give him. How many people have walked away? Walked away from Jesus. Walked away, not just from the church, not just from from particular aspects of the Christian life, but have walked away from Jesus because they were not willing to lose what Jesus called them to give. More heartbreaking than this is the people who are following Jesus. Though Jesus has asked them to give up something in their lives who try to follow without following his instructions. So those to whom Jesus has said, I want you to give me this and then come and follow me. But instead, we try to follow him without letting go. And on the outside, we may look to the culture like we're doing quite well. We might look like this man. We may even have leadership opportunities in the, in the community or, or in the church. But all the while, we're living in this, this disobedience to Jesus. This was my story for several years after meeting Jesus. I continued to be that person that I had become. I continued to value those same things that I valued before. I continued to desire to be a part of the in crowd. I continued to desire the approval and the praise from other humans. And early in my faith, I still, I still valued these things. And so I still sought to, to get them in those same old ways that I used to get them. I was, I was going to church, but I was also continuing to get drunk. I was going to Bible studies and then going and smoking pot afterward, boasting in things that were destructive to me and destructive with my relationship with God and destructive to others. And I thank God that one night a friend of mine had the sense to sit me down at a coffee shop and said, Adam, enough is enough. This is not who you are. This is not who Jesus has made you to be. Grace is not permission to sin. Grace is power to overcome sin. You have got to stop this. The sincerity of the profession of my faith for these first few years were just being undermined by my continual pursuit of other things that were not Jesus. Like a, like a runner who thinks they're doing well in a race only to find out that they were DQ'd at the starting line. Jesus has called us to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross and follow him. And we so often wrongfully think that we can follow him without denying ourselves or picking up our cross. Disqualified at the starting line. But when Jesus is our highest value, then the decisions that we make and the habits that we form will flow out of this heart of worship That's what the word worship means. It comes from this old English word, worship. It's declaring something to be of supreme value, of ultimate worth. 
It's, it's putting God, it's putting Jesus preeminent. It's been said, a brother even in prayer this morning was, was mentioning that, that uh, so often we make our list of priorities. Jesus isn't number one on the list of priorities. He's the title. He is the list. He becomes before first place. And when he is what we desire, when he is our supreme value, then the Holy Spirit transforms us to look like Jesus. And any value we place above Jesus, Scripture calls an idol. It's a false god. See, most of us will probably never find ourselves in a pagan temple bowing down to, to, to idols and, and statues. Our idolatry is significantly less conspicuous, but it is no less dangerous. We find ourselves often with our hands in the monkey trap, refusing to let go of the thing that we truly value, often while singing songs to Jesus. And the enemy has us right where he wants us. Whether it's wealth or health or youth or beauty or status and influence or a particular lifestyle that we're trying to live, if we want them more than we want Jesus, then it's an idol. Or if we're trying to use Jesus to get to that thing, Jesus is just a stepping stone, something to jump off of in order to get the thing that we really want. That thing is an idol. And these things aren't necessarily bad things. They can be good things that God makes made for us to enjoy. We can enjoy all of these things. You can enjoy health. You can enjoy wealth. You can enjoy youth. You can enjoy the lifestyle that God has provided for you. You can enjoy all of these things and never break a commandment. But if these good things become ultimate things, then they're roadblocks keeping us from worship and hindering our discipleship. And so how do we discern the idols in our lives? Just a couple quick things here. What do you spend your time and your money on? These are quite literal ways of understanding what we value. Look at your bank statements. How much do you spend on youth? You know the anti-aging industry in America is one of the fastest growing industries because people worship youth. They worship this, this looking and feeling. They, they, they worship this. What do we spend our time and money on? What kinds of commitments and lifestyle choices do we make that prevent us from being generous with our time and money for the sake of the kingdom? What are we spending our time and our money on? Another way is to ask the question, what things bring you anxiety? We're a very anxious culture. Our idols often lay dormant until they get threatened. And then the alarm bells of anxiety start sirening. What are the things that if you lost, it would be like losing yourself? When are you tempted to compromise your integrity or your faith? So you might never be tempted to steal, but what about during tax season? So easy to just like fudge a number. Maybe you're not going around spreading lies about people or lying about, uh, you know, making false claims of your accomplishments. But what happens when your reputation is at stake? What are you willing to say to cover up, to get people to look the other way, to protect your reputation? 
So what are the things that God is telling you to let go? See, Jesus uh, is not after this man's money. It's not about this man's money. It's about his heart. He wants this man's heart. He's not saying that as long as you have this in your life, you can't follow me. Jesus isn't coming to you today saying as long as, you, as this idol is in your life, you can't follow me. What he's saying is as long as you continue chasing after this idol, you won't follow me. As long as you have this other desire in your life that is superior to me, you won't follow And so discipleship means letting go of the things that we treasure most in order to follow Jesus, to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross and follow him. And so discipleship comes at a great cost. And it's a personal cost. It's unique to you. Nobody else can pay it for you. Jesus wants your heart specifically, uniquely. He is going to pursue you specifically and uniquely. And wealth is a great example of the things that interfere with giving Jesus our whole hearts, but it's not the barrier for everyone. See, Jesus doesn't require of everyone what he requires of this man. There are plenty of stories in scripture of wealthy people who are not commanded to go and sell it all and give to the poor, right? Think of the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus said, see, Lord, I give half of everything I own. And if I've defrauded anyone, then I restore it fourfold. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. Right? Think of James' instruction in the book of James to the wealthy. He doesn't tell the wealthy to go and sell everything. He tells the wealthy to pursue humility. In Acts chapter 5, there's this story of Ananias and Sapphira who sell a field and they bring the proceeds of the field to the apostles and they keep for themselves uh, uh, something else. Uh, They keep for themselves a portion, but then they tell the apostles that it's, this is, this is all of the money that they got for it. And they're, and they're, they're punished. They're struck dead for lying to the Holy Spirit, but they weren't struck down for keeping for themselves a portion of it. Peter says, was this not your property? Did you not have the right to keep some back for yourself? Why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? See, they had the the right to keep some for themselves. This isn't a command to everyone to sell everything and to give to the poor. Jesus was not a communist. So then who does it apply to? Who is Jesus calling to radical generosity like this? Is it only the super rich? Who's that? Is it only those who have more money than you that this applies to? See, I think we know I think we know who it applies to. I think we know if it applies to ourselves. Here's how we know. Did you experience a sigh of relief when you thought it might not apply to you? Oh, dang. I was totally reading a commentary this week and I read that it might not apply to me and I'm like, oh, thanks. And then I was like, oh gosh. Money might have more of a grip on our hearts than we think. Jesus wants our whole heart. And so the cost that we have to pay is deeply personal and unique to us. But there's also a communal cost. See, Mark is writing this gospel 
to the disciples in Rome who were experiencing massive persecution at the hands of Nero. And followers of Jesus were losing everything. Family members were disowning them. Employers fired them. The community stopped patronizing their shops and stores. They they lost everything. And all because people did not want to associate with Christians for fear of the backlash that might come from the government. But Jesus' encouragement to those in this text is that all of those who lose their things, all of those who lose their possessions, their, their brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and lands and houses, all of those people will receive them back a hundredfold. Brothers and sisters and mothers and lands and houses with persecutions will receive them back a hundredfold. And so the disciples in Rome are going, we're persecuting, we're being persecuted. Yes, that's going to come. You're going to lose everything. There will be times when, you're, when you are, 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 are uh, losing everything, either willingly or forcefully taken from you. But you will receive it back a hundredfold. The only reason this is possible is if there's a spiritual family with resources to care for them. It's the only way you can receive back a family that you've lost and and wealth that you've lost, the only way you can receive it back is if you are received by a family who is able and willing to provide for you. Many people during the pandemic have fallen on hard times and, and, and still continue to face the threat of job loss. And how many people do you know who have been forced to move in with family? Maybe you have had someone move in with you or you have moved in with family because of the difficult season in order for you to be able to get back on their feet. It's not what they would have wanted, but thank God that family was there. See, if we want to be the kind of community where people are able and willing to follow Jesus with this kind of reckless abandon, to give up everything they have to follow Jesus, then we need to be the kind of community that receives one another and provides for one another when someone experiences suffering and loss. See, nobody can pay for you what Jesus demands of you. Only you can give your life away. But as a community, we can receive you when it happens. We can care for you when you've lost everything. We can provide for you when there is need, not as an institution, but as a family. Not as a church building, but as a community, as a people. We are called to receive and care for those who have lost their family, to provide for those who have lost provision. Together we are called by God to be generous, to care for the poor, to comfort the hurting, to be a spiritual family. And honestly, for many people, this call to a selfless giving of our time and giving up of our convenience and and, and being generous with our finances as, as individuals have need is going to be more difficult than simply giving all of our possessions away. Because for us, the idol is not money. The idol is control. The idol is convenience. See, very few people in the world like set up a shrine to the dollar bill and bow down and worship it. Like, oh, look at all my money. No, it's what money can buy you. It's what money can get you. Money can give you power. 
Money can give you beauty. Money can give you fame, can give you influence, can give you control, can give you convenience. Money can bring comfort into your life. It's those things that we worship. And the most difficult thing is not necessarily giving our money away. It's giving up all of those other things that money can provide for us. And so as a community, what does God call us to do? To give up the things that we desire for ourselves in order to pursue the good of the family, to pursue the good of the individuals, to pursue the good of those who need provision. See, at some level for all of us, there's something that we are required to let go of that will feel impossible. And this is why Peter asks, who then can be saved? And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And there have been so many attempts to, to, to strip this of its, of its poignancy. That, oh, there was a low gate in Israel that a camel needed to remove the packs from and get down on its knees. And so this isn't a call to give all your money away. This is a call to humble ourselves. And to be quite honest with you, there is no historical evidence of any such gate. The eye of the needle gate. Some have said that, oh, actually the word camel here is a mistranslation. That it's actually the the word rope. Awesome. So it's easier for a rope to go through the eye of a needle. I don't know how this helps you. You still can't get a rope through the eye of a needle. This is a high calling. It is a high command. It's going to feel impossible. And Jesus says that it is impossible with humans, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And so that the reason that you today can confess your idols, the reason that that we today can let go of our trust in wealth or health or our intellect or our self-reliance is because of the infinite beauty and worth of Jesus. See, these good things that we idolize, the way we love them Less is not by mustering up and like taking love away from them. The way the, our love for these things begin to fade is when we love Jesus more. When Jesus becomes the brightest shining light in our life, all else will pale in comparison. See, the reason we can do all of these things is because of the infinite beauty and worth of Jesus. See, Jesus is no stranger to leaving behind riches and glory. He'd come to give it all away. He'd come to pursue us. Jesus is the true rich young ruler who made the heavens and the earth and everything in them, is the heir of all things, who sat in eternal glory over all of creation and who left it all to become a human, to live in perfect righteousness, submission and obedience to God and love for the poor and sinners, all of those that the culture had rejected. And Jesus' life as a young man was cut short. He died as a young man in order to give us eternal life. See, this man's question about the requirements to receive eternal life is summed up in this. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. 
Eternal life belongs to him as the eternally begotten son of God. And yet he laid his life down to purchase ours. The way we get to the point of willingness to give it all away is not by mustering up the courage and just doing it. Because that living, uh, giving it all away under compulsion will only, will only be storing up resentment in ourselves instead of wealth and we're no better off. The way we become willing to give it all away not just our money, but our lives, is to receive Jesus as the greatest treasure in all the universe. You will always choose money over Jesus. You will always choose comfort over discipleship. You will always choose romance over intimacy with God, status on earth over glory in heaven, youth and beauty over eternal life. You will always choose that thing in your heart right now that you're thinking, don't say it, don't say it, don't say it. That thing, you'll choose that over Jesus time and time again until you receive Jesus and believe and trust and exalt him in your mind and heart as the greatest treasure in all the universe, the most beautiful thing you can ever gaze upon, the most valuable thing you could ever receive, the most perfect, beautiful, wonderful thing in your life. You will always choose everything else over him until you see him for who he is. He is the light of the world, casting out the darkness and the cold, He's the bread of life, sustaining and satisfying our deepest longings. He is the living water, refreshing our weary souls. He's the king of kings who rules with self-giving love. He's the pearl of great price, which a man saw and sold everything he had so that he could just own that one thing. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The prosperity gospel tries to appeal to you by promising that God will give you all the things that this world values, health and wealth and the American dream, and it's a false gospel. It is a false gospel promoting false saviors. God wants to give you something so much better than health and wealth and beauty and fame. He wants to give you himself. He wants to give you himself. This doesn't mean that life will be easy. Jesus' life wasn't easy. But it does mean that God will give you the Holy Spirit to live like he lived, to love like Jesus loved, to endure the things that Jesus endured, that the Holy Spirit will empower you for a life of love and generosity and obedience. Though it will cost you everything, the Holy Spirit, by uniting you to Jesus, has given you everything. And Jesus is not asking of us anything that he hasn't already demonstrated time and time again that he was willing to give us. He's given us himself. And by following him, he makes you like him. And he is pleased to give you himself and not only that, but eternal life. What must we do to inherit eternal life? trust in Jesus. Let's pray together. Jesus, we love you. And yet we confess we don't love you as much as we want. Jesus, we desire your presence, your power, your mercy, and your grace. But God, we also treasure up other things. 
And so, Lord, I pray that you would capture our attention. Jesus, that you would capture our hearts. That you would be the brightest shining light in a world of darkness. That all of the good things that you made, we would, we would enjoy, certainly. But not in a way that makes you second best. Capture our attention. Capture our hearts, Lord. Reveal in us a desperation for your presence. Forgive us when we become distracted by lesser things. God, we love you. We ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit as we worship together. God, we long to see Carpinteria, the coastlands, California, the United States, all the nations in the world. Lord, we, we, we long to see them acknowledge you as, as the greatest treasure in all the universe. Lord, I believe that will come as your people live like we believe you are the greatest treasure in all the universe. And so, Lord, come. We believe that your presence is among us. We pray that you would manifest your presence in joy and praise, just pouring forth from the hearts and mouths of your people. Because, God, we don't want anything else. God, we don't need anything else. All we desire is you. All that we want is you. We love you, Lord. Do a work in us as you please. In Jesus' name.